Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. There are three epistles in your Bible in the New Testament that are pastoral epistles, meaning that our brother Paul wrote them to ministers. This is one of them. I want to read the last three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. Amen and amen. A pastoral epistle is written by an apostle, the Apostle Paul, to this, in this case, a young minister named Timothy. And after having explained in a couple of chapters how he ought to conduct himself, and having explained in chapter 3 the qualifications for bishops and deacons, he then explains to Timothy that he had just given him how he ought to behave himself in the house of God. This is God's house of the New Testament. There was a patriarchal age from Genesis to Moses, or we could say from Adam to Moses, in which special men worshipped God in various places. They were called patriarchs because they were fathers that led their children in family worship where God spoke to them and where they built altars to worship God. After that patriarchal age, We had the nation of Israel for a couple thousand years in which Moses gave the law of God to Israel on Mount Sinai and they worshipped in Jerusalem in a tabernacle and then in a temple. But in the New Testament, Jerusalem has no significance and there is no temple on earth that God dwells in but His local churches like this. Because the worship of God under the New Testament is a spiritual worship of the inner man not worshipped outwardly by the senses or in a building made of stone, but in a place where saints assemble, love His name, and follow His ordinances. This house of God, which is the church of the living God, that is what we have today and what we want to be thankful for, that God has given us His church. And that God has shown us His church where we can come together in an assembly like this and worship Him as our young brother just prayed. It says here that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. A pillar is a large column that helps support a building. And so when the Bible says that the church is the pillar of the truth, that means that the church supports and upholds the truth. It says that the church is the ground of the truth. The ground is the foundation or the base for that pillar or for that building to rest upon. 
And the truth rests upon the church, maintaining it, keeping it, promoting it, defending it, teaching it, and perpetuating it in the earth. And these things Paul told Timothy that he was to do in the church. And then there are six wonderful doctrines taught in that final verse of chapter 3. And it says, without controversy, that great is the mystery of godliness. In the church are revealed things that you cannot learn anywhere else. We supposedly live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. But when I read the Greenville News, I never see any Bible. Because outside of the true churches of Jesus Christ, there is no Bible taught, nor Bible believed, nor Bible loved, nor truth sought, nor truth defended. Instead, the truth is railed upon and ridiculed even in our own city. They can write millions of words of print, but there is not one word about the truth of the New Testament. But there is no controversy about this fact. These great mysteries that God has revealed to us in the New Testament are special things, and it is our duty, yea, it is our privilege, to defend them, to teach them, and to promote them. God was manifest in the flesh. God, Creator of heaven and earth, came and dwelt on planet earth for 33 and a half years in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What a glorious doctrine. He was justified in the Spirit. That means He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the miraculous wonders He did by the power of the Holy Ghost and by being raised from the dead according to the timetable that He had given. Has there ever been a man that could say, kill me, I'll be in the ground three days and three nights, and then I'll come out. And then come out. Now that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He was seen of angels. Angels came and ministered to Him. They sang at His birth, and they comforted Him before His death. And they saw Him when He rose up into heaven. This Lord Jesus Christ was preached unto the Gentiles by Jewish preachers. And He was believed on in the world. And you be thankful for that, brethren. Our ancestors did not know the God of heaven. Our ancestors worshipped all sorts of imaginations. But He was believed on in the world. And then He was received up into glory. And that's where our Lord Jesus Christ is right now, up in glory. Come back with me to Jeremiah 5. Those passages that were read to us by three of our brothers are so good, I want to just very briefly comment on them. Before we proceed, Jeremiah chapter 5. The subject this morning is the pillar and ground of the truth. A church has as one of its great goals to defend and support, uphold and teach and promote the truth. And we want to make sure that we're fulfilling that role that God's given us. And we want to rejoice at it. We are privileged. You are privileged. To have God chosen you to be part of a church wherein His truth is for you to be able to defend it and hold it for the next generation. And we trust that they will hold it for the generation that follows them. Look at Jeremiah 5.1. Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know, 
and seek in the broad places thereof, if ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. Jeremiah had a message to Judah of destruction. God was going to come and destroy his own people for their wicked rebellion against his word. And here he says, can you even find one man in the city of Jerusalem that executes judgment and that seeks the truth? They couldn't find any. Are you going to be a man that when God looks into the Piedmont of the South Carolina, He finds you seeking the truth? Every man has a privilege that hears the truth to be a defender of that truth. It's one thing to defend our families at night from trouble. It's another thing to defend our country from external enemies. It's another thing to defend our country from internal enemies, as a policeman would. But it's another thing, and it's a glorious thing, to defend the truth of God. Verse 2 says, And though they say, The Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Yes, the Lord's eyes are upon the truth. These people use the Lord's name. They had church services, but they didn't really seek the truth nor love the truth. But God's eyes are on the truth. God does not want to be worshipped the way you want to worship Him. God, The God of heaven does not want to be worshipped the way the nation thinks He ought to be worshipped. The God of heaven does not care about a popularity contest in the forms of worship. He does not care what church is the largest, the fastest growing. He wants the church that holds to the truth of God's Word. Amen. Jeremiah 5. Come back to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. We better fulfill our role as the pillar and ground of the truth because the truth is departing from the earth. It's easy to spell the word. It's easy to use the word. But very few can define the word and to define it with God's word. God defines truth. The scientists of America that hallucinate about a Big Bang, and about us coming from slime, have no truth. They cannot even follow the scientific method that was taught to us in the third grade. And that is, you had better be able to observe a phenomenon before you write about it. And that you had better be able to duplicate that phenomenon before you write about it. They've never seen evolution, and they've never duplicated it. They've never seen a Big Bang, and they can't duplicate it. There is more likelihood that you could blow up a bomb in the Greenville News printing place downtown on Main Street and have an Oxford English Dictionary result out in the street than there is of a Big Bang resulting in this. They're all idiots. And we are not arrogant nor haughty when we say that because it's not our intelligence that we're comparing to them. It's the Word of God that we're comparing to them. God has spoken. Every child that ever has opened a Bible has usually started with the first verse, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that's what we believe, because that's what the Bible says. And that's the only explanation that makes sense. 
That requires the least amount of faith. That there is an infinitely intelligent being in the universe that spoke things into existence out of nothing. That makes a whole lot more sense than there was an explosion of chaotic gases and you're the result. Isaiah 59 and verse 14. Judgment is turned away backward. We protect murderers and murder unborn children. I would say that's judgment, judgment turned away backward. And justice standeth afar off. No one does anything for our unborn children. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. When it says, he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey, if you take a stand for what is right and for what is true, you will make yourself a prey for the ridicule and persecution of this world because they cannot stand someone that has absolute truth and defends the Bible. If you stand up for what the Bible teaches, you will be made fun of. You make yourself a prey for those because truth has fallen in the street. And we want to raise it up again. And we want to use this church to raise it up and to hold it up. That's Isaiah 59. Lord, help us and have mercy on us. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4, where the Lord Jesus Christ met the woman at the well of Samaria and told her, how God had to be worshipped, and what kind of worshippers God was seeking. This poor woman was a Samaritan. They were half-breeds. They were half-Assyrian and half-Jewish. The Jews hated them. They hated the Jews. The Jews wouldn't let them worship in their temple in Jerusalem, so they set up their own place of worship in the mountains of Samaria. That's why she says in verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Remember, Jesus was in Samaria. And ye say, she's addressing Jesus as a Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So there we have two religions. The religion of Samaria, the Samaritans, and the religion of the Jews being compared by this woman. Jesus says this in verse 21. Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain of the Samaritans, nor yet at Jerusalem of the Jews, worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. Now that's not very nice. He told the woman she didn't know what she was worshiping. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. God has only given his truth to the Jewish nation at this point in time. But... The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus set aside the worship of the Jews of the Old Covenant. And Jesus set aside the worship of the Samaritans. And said a new form of worship is now being introduced into the world And that form of worship is what is taught in the New Testament. 
Because the Lord Jesus Christ was opening up that New Testament Gospel through His ministry and His cousin's ministry, John the Baptist. And with the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they opened up worship for the Gentiles, and no longer was God worshipped in temples or places like mountains or Jerusalem. God was now to be worshipped with an internal worship of the spirit of man, because God is a spirit, and He seeks to be worshipped by our spirits in a spiritual form of worship that has no need for temples, altars, priests, vestments, candles, incense, organs, flags, or anything else. It it requires the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God and souls that understand that God is a spirit and they want to worship Him with their spirits. And they want to do that in truth. This is what Jesus taught to the woman of Samaria. And this is what we want to fulfill in this church. Because Jesus was hard on even His own religion. The time is coming when He's not even going to be worshipped in this city of Jerusalem. And brethren, we are the heavenly Jerusalem according to the testimony of the New Testament. The churches of Jesus Christ in every place combined together are the Jerusalem. Where they, we can worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's come back to First Timothy Chapter 3. Oh, those were good passages, and thank you, brothers, for reading them this morning. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, I want to come and see you soon, but if I don't get there soon, I've written to you so that you'll know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. Notice, there is a particular way that we are to conduct ourselves when we worship God. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have told Timothy how he ought to behave himself. He could have left it up to Timothy. You know, that's what everyone's doing today. Whatever feels good. The changes in religious worship in our country in the last 75 years are almost too much to believe. No one cares what the Bible says anymore. They just care about what all the young people want to do. They just care about what's easy. They just care about what's popular. They don't want the hard doctrine of the Bible. They don't want long sermons. They want it to be easy. And there is a great change taking place before our very eyes. And God calls us as a church to be the pillar and ground of the truth and to not move. And we cannot move. He says in Jeremiah 6 and verse 16, Stand and seek the the old paths and walk therein. We're old-fashioned. We're very old-fashioned. We look very different from the churches of today. But just 150 years ago, those churches once looked like us. They have changed. We have not. We're holding to the Bible. They have left the Bible to come up with a new religion, new forms of worship. But God doesn't accept new forms of worship. He gave His Word once. And it was delivered once to the saints, and we are to defend it and earnestly contend for it. You are blessed. You are very blessed to have a church and to have a church that has had the truth given to it. And we continue and we will continue to pray for more truth, for God to show us all that He wants us to know from His New Testament Scriptures. But we have a privilege and a duty, and that is to defend the truth. Every young man in here, Ought to be excited about that prospect. Because every young man in here, before he knows it, as I have discovered, 
will be a grandfather soon. Every young man. Now, the farthest thing from your minds, young men, is being a grandpa. It was the farthest thing from my mind. But all of a sudden, I was a grandpa. All of you young men, you're going to be leading families. And you're, I, I trust that God will be merciful to us. And He'll keep you in this church. And you'll be faithful with your wives and your children and their wives and their children. And you will uphold the truth and maintain it and be the support for it and defend it and promote it in the earth. Amen. I spent a couple of days in Charleston this past week. Thank you for the privilege of getting away with my two youngest children who were on spring break. My favorite place in Charleston, my favorite historical event there is not the Hunley. It's not the Lexington. It's not Rainbow Row. It's the First Baptist Church of Charleston, which has gravely departed from the faith and truth upon which it was founded. South Carolina in its beginnings had great religious tolerance and freedom. And I've taught you this, that there was a small congregation of Baptists in Kettering, Maine in 1690. That's a hundred years before we even became a country. But they were persecuted by the state church of the Congregationalists, otherwise known as the Puritans, in that state. It wasn't a state of the Union. There wasn't a Union. There wouldn't be one for a hundred years. But there was a state church already, and it was the Congregational Puritans from England. And so a little congregation of about 20 saints that believed they were the pillar and ground of the truth, that loved the truth and sought the truth, they got in a boat because they had heard of religious tolerance in a place called the Carolinas. And they came all the way down our eastern seaboard and docked at Charleston and formed a church there that still exists. And that church looked just like our church and believed the things that our church believes this day. But they have gravely departed from the truth. And if you go visit that church and, and sit in a service, you'll see the difference. Now it's a, it's a tourist attraction. You know, they want to show off their building to people. But do you know what? The most precious thing in that building is not the columns nor the pews that you had to rent to sit there in the 1800s, but it's a plaque in the foyer that tells about the 20 souls that put their belongings on a boat and came down the Atlantic coast and formed a church there and the confession of faith that they held that believed in God's election and predestination and the limited atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and God's sovereign decrees over the affairs of men like we believe. Amen. That was over 300 years ago. It was the first Baptist church in our state. Those people paid a dear price for the truth. I don't want to see our church turn into anything like that. We want to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Amen. We're a strange church in Greenville County. 
the conservative churches in our city are falling before the English Standard Version. A new Bible model. You know, they come out with a new Bible model every six months. And here we are, we're still holding the King James Bible. 400 years old. God's stamp of approval upon it for 400 years by the fruit that it bore in people's lives and in churches and in nations that had it preached. So we're different. We're using an old-fashioned Bible. And we're thankful for that Bible. The English Standard Version has so many errors in it, which we've looked at before. And it's no different from the models before it. But it's so intriguing to have the new one on the block. People do that when they buy automobiles. they got to have the new one on the block. They still have an automatic transmission, a steering wheel, four wheels, and so forth. They have a trunk. They have a hood. They have two seats. But they got to have a new one. And so churches today have to have a new Bible. And we stick with the King James Bible. Look what I preached last Sunday. I worked so hard to preach to you how to defend against salvation problem texts. Because we hold to a different doctrine of salvation. We hold that God saves by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and will not lose a single one that He ever intended to save. That Jesus Christ absolutely secured their eternal life. We don't hold to the decisional regeneration and easy believism of this generation of churches. Last week, we had a very inconvenient baptism. And we had that inconvenient baptism because I will not use that baptistry. Even though it's a minor point, and I'll grant you that minor point, I don't want to do anything that even takes the first step, the first motion, or leans in the direction of compromise. We baptized again because we had doubts about the administrator of a first baptism. We're strange. We're strange Baptists. We're trying to hold the old paths in a world that no longer cares very much. Yesterday we had singing practice for releasing another CD of a cappella singing. A cappella singing. Why don't we have a rock band in here? Most churches do. They believe that's the only way they can keep their young people. It's to feed them rock and roll music in the name of Jesus. We could have country western music in here. We could have formal traditional music of piano and organ. But I want to remind you of something. There were no Baptist churches with musical instruments in them even 150 years ago. That is an invention. The invention of musical instruments is contrary to what Jesus told the woman of Samaria. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, God seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. A box that makes noise does not help you worship in spirit. Worshiping in spirit is singing words, a cappella, which is what the New Testament tells us to do. And so here we are, strange. But there's a reason for it. We're holding to the old paths. Amen. You know, the Catholics, they had their musical instruments. How much did they care about spirit or truth? They took every dollar, every dime, and every penny they could get out of the poor people 
of their parish to build their monstrosities, thinking that God dwells in temples made with hands. But he doesn't. He has been worshipped by people meeting in all sorts of places for 2,000 years, many of them in fear for their lives. You know, our, in our city, we have a university here called Bob Jones University. Bob Jones loves a man named Charles Spurgeon. He was a preacher in London, England, and preached to 20,000 at a crack in the Metropolitan Tabernacle back in the late 1800s. That's only 120 years ago. When he was asked about musical instruments, he said, if we're going to sing by mechanical contraptions, we might as well start praying by them as well. I like that answer. That's only 120 years ago, and you know, we have a city that, that those that are conservative in it think that Charles Spurgeon was just the, uh, the cat's meow when it came to preaching and, and a Baptist. That's what he said. Then there was John Wesley, the Methodist, you know, who wrote a number of the songs in, in the hymnal that we use. He said, I have nothing against a piano or organ in the house of God as long as they're neither seen nor heard. That's what John Wesley said. Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutherans, he said, an organ in the house of God is the ensign of Baal. He called it Baal worship. Now see, when anyone comes and asks us about why we don't have musical instruments, they think we're nutcases. But most of them come from religious denominations that just 150 years ago didn't have them either. And there's a reason we don't want them. They appeal to the flesh and not to the spirit. And we want to appeal to the spirit of man through the spirit of God by the spirit of his word. And so that's why we're strange. You know, today's Easter Sunday, they tell me. Today's Easter Sunday. It's the most important date on the liturgical calendar. Thankfully, most of you have to ask, what does liturgical mean? That means churches that do everything according to a book that tells them when to stand, sneeze, what to read, what to pray, because there's no spirit in what they do. It's just going through a routine. They'll kiss the Bible, but they don't read it for its understanding and letting its words convict their hearts. You know, we're not going to have an Easter egg hunt. Children, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my father. He gets to say whatever he wants to. No Easter egg hunt. Rabbits don't lay eggs, children. In spite of all the pictures that you're seeing of Peter Cottontail hopping around with a basket of eggs, rabbits don't lay eggs. For anybody with just a a couple of cents worth of common sense, what is a rabbit known for? Reproductive fertility and its reproductive power. When I was 26 and working at Michigan National Bank of Detroit with four children, my nickname was the rabbit. One of them. Because I had four children at the age of 26. It was unusual to all the guys around me that didn't have any. Everybody knows what a rabbit does. If you put a male and a female rabbit in a cage, you better be expecting to do something with all that's going to result. And we know what eggs are for as well. They are a symbol of life and reproduction because even we are dependent upon that monthly cycle. 
What do we have rabbits hopping around with baskets of eggs for? Do you think that comes from the New Testament? Those are pagan symbols of fertility, which we'll deal with in the second assembly, the Lord willing. Nothing to do with the religion of Jesus Christ. And yet there's churches in our city that claims to be the buckle of the Bible belt that are going to have Easter egg hunts and pictures of rabbits with eggs. Some began the day with a sunrise service. They stood singing, facing the east, while the sun rose. Where's that in the New Testament? I can tell you other places that it is, and we'll consider that in our second services. Second service. That is a pagan rite that dates long before the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. Men have worshipped the sun in the spring from time immemorial because when the sun lengthens the days in the spring and revives the earth and puts buds on the trees and flowers on the plants and causes animals to mate and renews the earth, pagans worship that sun. And all Easter is is an amalgamation of pagan practices whitewashed with a name of Christianity. The English word Easter, go look it up in a real dictionary, like the Oxford English Dictionary, and see what the word Easter means. It is a pagan celebration of the goddess of spring and fertility, Eostra. Here we are. We have three that are going to join our assembly this morning. I want them to understand what they're getting themselves into. Hopefully they already know that. That we want to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Young man, you're 12 years old. I am counting on you as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ that you'll be faithful to Him in the years to come. You excite me. I wish I could go back and be 12 and live the last 37 years better for the Lord. I want to help you live them better. We have a husband and a wife with four children. And I want them to realize the role they have to be a pillar and ground of the truth. Brethren, look at Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Where does truth come from? Are we born with truth? Do we learn truth in school? Or does God give truth? Does He withhold it from some and give it to others? Indeed. God does not owe truth to anyone. Truth is a privilege, not a right. We made our choice in the Garden of Eden. God gave us truth. The devil gave us a lie. And our first parents chose the lie over the truth. We said, in the most perfect parents that we ever had, we want lies rather than truth. Don't bother us with your truth. God does not owe us truth. He owes us lies because that's what we said we prefer. Thanks be to the God of heaven. He's merciful and He shows the truth to some. Psalm 147 and verse 20. I'll, I'll read verse 19 as well for its contextual value. Psalm 147.19 He showeth His word unto Jacob, His statutes and His judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for His judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Will you praise the Lord with me? 
God chose the little nation of Israel to give them the truth through His Word. When God chose Israel, were they the largest of nations, a medium-sized nation, or the smallest of all nations in the earth? Smallest. Deuteronomy chapter 7, the first seven verses, God says, when I chose you, you were the smallest of all people. And yet God sent His truth only to them. The Egyptians worshipped dogs. Worshipped dogs. The Egyptians worshipped a man named Pharaoh as a priest king. They did not know God's judgments or His statutes because God kept those things from them. God gave them to His people Israel. God discriminates. And He discriminates in the dispensation of His truth. He gives it to some and He withholds it from others. And when we get it, we should be thankful for it. That's why this psalm ends with, Praise ye the Lord. And these last two verses are, He hath not dealt so with any nation. I have limited time this morning. I have many texts that I could show you about this great blessing that God gave Israel. Moses told Israel, The statutes that I have given you from God make you different from all other nations on earth. When they hear of these statutes... They are going to say among themselves, there has never been a people so close to God or with such wise statutes and judgments as this understanding people. Because the code of laws found in the Old Testament, which were given in 1500 B.C., are fantastic. They're wonderful. When you read them, if you have an open heart opened by the Lord God of heaven, you know that they are special. And the nations of the earth have not known them, except a few of them, and that coming from the nation of Israel. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. This is a hard point for many people to believe that God doesn't owe us all truth. He doesn't owe us truth. We chose lies when He gave us His truth. We chose death when He offered us life. You know, there was a tree in the Garden of Eden that they could freely eat of. It was called the tree of life. They gave up that tree in order to have each other against God's Word. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is preaching to the multitude and He recognizes that the educated ones don't believe Him. The ones that have been to seminary, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers of his day, did not believe what he preached. It was the simple people, the tax collectors and the harlots even, that believed him. And when he saw this, here's what he said. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus Christ blessed the God of heaven for having hid the things that he was teaching from the wise and prudent. That means from those that were educated and intelligent, and revealed them instead to those that were babes in the world's opinion. And he said, the only explanation for it is, it seemed good in the sight of God to do it this way. That's the sovereign God that we worship in the Bible. 
God does not owe anyone the truth. That He gives the truth to anyone is pure mercy and grace. And so we ought to say, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for showing us any truth at all. How important is the truth? Jesus told the woman of Samaria, God seeks those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you're not worshiping Him in truth, your worship is unacceptable. You say, well, what if my motives are good? He doesn't care about your motives. He wants you worshiping Him with truth. Think about a few Bible examples. Did David have a good motive when he had a new ox cart built to carry the Ark of the Covenant to its resting place? Did he celebrate that with grandeur? Did God accept his good motive? No. God killed a man named Uzzah and rained on that parade. And David was so afraid, he sent the Ark of the Covenant off the street into the nearest house where it sat for three months. We are told in the Bible that God judged David in that parade because he did not follow according to the due order. Those are the words of the Bible. The Bible said you will put rings at the corner of the Ark of the Covenant. When it is moved, the priests only will put rods through those rings and they will carry it on their shoulders. David overlooked that. We do not know the details in his mind. But he overlooked that and had a new ox cart built for it. You know, you would reason the same way I would. Look at the man's heart. David loved the Lord. David wanted to move the ark. He had a new, a new cart built for it. But God said, you're not following me according to due order. And he killed a man in the middle of that parade. Do you know what the man's offense was? He reached up to steady it because it looked like it was going to fall off the cart. Is that a good motive? That's a very good motive. Does God care about motives? No. No. He wants to be worshipped in truth. Somebody will say, well, he sounds like such a mean God. He's God. If he says he wants to be worshipped in such a way, why do you want to worship him in another way? He doesn't sound mean to me. He sounds like God. I want to be worshipped the way I say I want to be worshipped. You know, those examples can be multiplied. David's not the only one. It's important for us to worship him in truth. But there's a threat today, brethren. There's a threat. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. There is a threat against the truth, and we need to be warned about it. And we need to realize that we have a sober and solemn duty to be pillars and ground of the truth in this church. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 3, we're back in Timothy, meaning Paul the Apostle, writing a young minister named Timothy, telling him what was going to develop in the history of Christianity. This is a prophecy. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Paul told Timothy, 
Christianity is going to degenerate. Christians are no longer going to want to sit in long assemblies where someone is preaching to them. They will not want sound doctrine, and they will not endure it. Listen, brethren, I know sitting and listening to me is something you have to endure. It's not very entertaining to the flesh, especially the backside of your flesh. But Paul warned us that this was going to happen. So what have churches done in the last 75 years? Less and less preaching, more and more entertainment. Less and less truth, more and more fables. They will listen to stories and they will listen to special music all day long. But they don't want the preaching of God's Word. And so here's the threat. And we need to be a pillar and ground of the truth and hold it fast. We need to uphold and maintain the truth that God has given us and not move away from it, though the rest of the Christian world does. Seventy-five years ago, you know, when you went to church, and I'm speaking mostly of Baptist churches, you know, the daughters of Rome, they, they all looked like their mother to quite an extent. You know, if you went to the Roman church 75 years ago, you were going to listen to a priest chant in Latin for 60 minutes. You wouldn't know a single thing that was said because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't want you to know any truth. For 1,500 years, they would not let the Mass be done in the common language of the people in order to keep them in ignorance. They would not let the common people read the Bible because they told them you're incapable of understanding it. You have to come to us priests for all the knowledge of God. Isn't that a nice little corner on the market? I'm talking about Baptist churches. When you went into Baptist churches, they were going to open the Word of God and some man was going to thunder from a pulpit. You know what they call that now? They call that fire and brimstone preaching, and they make fun of it. Those preachers didn't preach about fire and brimstone every time they opened the Bible, but they did open the Bible, and they did preach the Word of God. They did not tell stories. It did not sound like you were in a Dale Carnegie class when you went to church. It did not sound like you were in an AA meeting when you went to church. It didn't look like you were in an Amway rah-rah meeting when you went to church. They didn't have Jesus lock-ins. They didn't have rock with Jesus. They preached the Word of God. And look at what Paul told Timothy he better do in in order to combat the times that were coming. Look at verse 2. Preach the Word. I'm not good at storytelling. And I don't apologize for that. I was never commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible, to tell stories. I was told to preach the Word, and there's my job description. Preach the Word. Be instant, which means to be insistent and pressing and urgent, in season, out of season. Whether it's convenient or not, unload the Word of God on your hearers. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Now, how important was this to Paul that he communicated to Timothy. How important? Look at that first verse. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. The Apostle Paul, in private correspondence with Timothy, dropped two names. The God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and said, you better be faithful because Jesus Christ is going to come and judge the world and He's going to come and judge you if you're not faithful in preaching the Word against the social trends of Christianity. Which is what we do this day. Brethren, there are enemies of truth. There is tradition. You ask some churches, why do we do that? I don't think it's found in the Bible. Well, we've just always done it that way. Who cares that you always did it that way? Listen, we all used to do a lot of things a lot of ways. I'm thankful for the automobile. So what? Who cares how Daddy did it? Who cares how Grandpa did it? If it doesn't line up with the Word of God. Tradition is the enemy of truth. Popularity. Others measure truth by popularity. You know, the fastest growing denominations in the world are Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Seventh-day Adventists. Who wants to join them? Growth and popularity doesn't mean anything, especially in a time where we've been told that men will no longer endure sound doctrine, but they're going to follow fables. And Joseph Smith and all of his dreams are fables. No wonder they're fast-growing, because Christianity is looking for a fable rather than truth. Growth is an evidence of fables, not of truth. Because the truth was going to be less and less. Because it says in this passage, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Popularity means nothing. Jesus said, that the way to destruction has a big, wide gate and a big, broad way. And the way that leads to life has a straight, like a straight jacket gate and a very narrow way. Amen. The cost. Most people won't pay a price to follow the truth. In order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you had to pay a price. He said if you couldn't learn to hate the dearest relationships in your life in comparison to Him, and if you couldn't learn to hate your own life also, couldn't be His disciple. Those are His words, and He said them over and over again. False teachers. There were false teachers in the days of the Apostle Paul, and He said there would be many more. False teachers are enemies of the truth because they teach things contrary to the truth. Jesus said about the lawyers of His day. And the lawyers of His day were not those public defenders that went to court. They were men that studied the law of God and tried to apply God's law. They knew the Bible very well. Jesus said that those lawyers kept the key of knowledge from the people. They would not enter into the kingdom of heaven and neither would they let others enter in either. False teachers. Friends. The Bible says evil communications corrupt good manners. If you hang around with people that don't care about truth, it will destroy your love of truth. You need to be around others that love truth. Because evil communications will corrupt your good manners. Your associates and those people you choose to company with are going to set what kind of a person you are. The Bible teaches that. Ignorance. You know, most people today in most churches are so ignorant of the Bible. 
They don't even know what to believe. They just take it for granted that what comes out of the pulpit must be the truth because Mama was a Baptist, so I'm a Baptist. But everything that comes out of a pulpit should be tried by the Word of God. The Bible says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. And that includes this pulpit. That includes this pulpit more than any pulpit. Search the Scriptures daily is what the Bible teaches men to do in order to be noble. Carelessness. They care about the things of this life. They care about their jobs. They get so wrapped up in their family. They get so wrapped up in their yard, their house, their possessions, their things, that they neglect the Word of God because it takes work to read, to study, to retain, to review, to hold fast the things that you're taught. Brethren, we have roles. The church has a role to protect and promote the truth. We protect and promote the truth by talking about it, having it preached, rejoicing in it, saying amen at the sound of it, encouraging one another in it, strengthening each other to stand fast in the truth when there might be some persecution involved. Each of you are to encourage and exhort one another daily, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and turn away from the living God. The Bible teaches these things. The church has officers that God ordained for the church to have to preach the truth. God's officers, especially bishops, are not administrators. They're preachers of God's Word. You know, it used to be common in this city that when you met your minister, especially a Baptist, he had a title. And it was preacher. Preacher Smith. Preacher Jones. Because until recently, that's what he was most known for. He preached. Now they got fancy puffed up titles like reverend and doctor. Oh, for a preacher, because what was his job description? Preach the word. Amen. Preach the word. That's the role that he's been given, is to hold fast the faithful things as he hath been taught, that he might in turn teach others. Listen to how the truth is perpetuated in the world. Paul told Timothy, the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul said, the things you've heard of me, the things you have heard of me, commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. Four generations of preachers is what ordination is all about. One minister ordaining another and charging him to preach the word that he has heard among many witnesses. And so Paul's doctrine has been perpetuated in the earth by successive ordinations of men faithful to their calling. That's a role that God gave the church. The church withdraws from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from the Apostle Paul. A church excludes anyone that's a heretic and puts them outside the church to keep the church in, of one mind in the things of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church teaches men to be good men. Because a good man is going to teach his wife the things of God. And a good man is going to teach his children the things of God. It's a shame in our nation when the wife has to become the spiritual leader in most homes because the man doesn't do his job. In the Bible, it was the man that led the worship. And the wife could be the cheerleader and the loving supporter and the reinforcer 
and the supervisor in his absence. But he was the leader. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what men say. That's a real man. That's Joshua in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Mothers reinforce that as Lois and Eunice did with Timothy. What are the methods? You need to learn the Bible. You need to listen to every time the Bible is opened up here. Even when it's being read by the three brothers that we have in many assemblies. When it's being preached, you must retain, you must focus and retain what's being taught in order to build up a body of knowledge in your mind. In order to promote faith in your heart. Because there are many men. And I'm not giving you all the verses that we can look at. There are many men that are using sleight of lip to deceive and to move men away from the truth. You must retain it. You must store up the Word of God in you to be able to give a reason of the hope that is in you. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says that people should ask you a reason of the hope that is within you. Now, a reason isn't, well, that's just the way I believe it. That's no reason at all. Who cares what you believe? Who cares what I believe? Your reason should be, thus saith the Lord. And here's the reference. A reason. You know, a reason is an argument or evidence in proof of an assertion. It's not enough to say, I believe. Do you know how to take the Word of God and answer people? You need to know the Bible. You know, Solomon told his son in Proverbs chapter 22, I want you to have the certain words of truth fitted in your lips. Don't give vague answers. If you don't have a powerful answer from the Bible... Say, I'm not sure of that answer right now, but I'll tell you what. Give me 24 hours and I'll get back to you and I will have a sure answer for you. Then you can email me or call me and I'll help you get that sure answer. And if I have to tell you, give me 24 hours and I'll get you a sure answer. We'll get it one way or another. We want the certain words of truth fitted in our lips. We need to hold fast to the absolute confidence of Scripture. We are not going to move from the New Testament. What the New Testament says is good enough for us. We don't care if the whole nation unites against us and says that religion has to be practiced in this country a new way. We're going to hold to the old paths of what the Bible teaches. We have to. Our fathers have done that. That little Baptist congregation in Charleston that I told you about, they didn't care what the state church in Maine said. They came to Charleston because they were going to worship God according to the Bible and according to what God had taught them in their conscience. We need to teach our children. Every time you have devotions with your children, it is a precious time in which you are investing in them to get the Word of God in their souls and in their lips. We have to do it. We cannot move away from it. We need to support it church-wide. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Brethren, there's so much more that can be said on this I have scratched the surface, as you well know. There will be an outline on the Internet on our website where you can get a whole lot more references for these and other points that I haven't made this morning, but I hope I've made this one. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Are you committed together as a church to support, uphold, maintain, defend, and promote the truth as it is in Jesus Christ and recorded in the Bible?